Hello, and thank you for joining us on episode seven of the SAP UK podcast. On today's show, we're exploring the world of sustainable fashion and beauty, and we have a great lineup of speakers discussing how technology is playing a key role in transforming this vibrant sector. Thanks again to our partner, the C-Suite podcast, for producing this episode. Let's kick off. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and the topic for discussion this time is how digital acceleration is helping to drive sustainable fashion and beauty. Joining me online are four guests with tremendous experience within these sectors. Uh, firstly, logging on from the Netherlands, we have Anne-Christine Paulette, who is leading the digital venture arm for PVH Europe uh, with startups Hatch and Stitch. And we'll get Anne-Christine to explain a bit more about both of those shortly. Next is Joanna Jensen, founder and chair of Charles Farm, which after launching in 2014, has been the UK's fastest growing baby and child toiletries brand uh, since 2015. And then from SAP, we have Maria Marias, a global industry director for consumer industries, and Gemma Carver, global CX advisor for retail. Uh, now, during the show, we'll also hear from Kev McFadden, brand director for Berghaus at Pentland Brands. Uh, Kev unfortunately couldn't make this recording, but earlier this week, he shared his thoughts with me on a couple of the issues that we are going to discuss. Now, we've spoken in detail detail on a previous episode with SAP about sustainability in business. That was particularly around the topics of recycling and what SAP are doing in terms of finding solutions to the issues around ocean plastic. Uh, So Maria, I'm very aware of the importance your business puts on this issue. But to kick off this episode, I thought perhaps you could set the scene for us in terms of the issues faced within the beauty and fashion sectors in particular around sustainability that you believe digital acceleration can address. And then we can delve deeper into them throughout this conversation. Conversation. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to talk about fashion and beauty because I've been seeing a tremendous amount of work over the past couple of years, and uh, mainly due to the efforts of organizations looking at sustainability and circular economies, such as Ellen MacArthur Foundation. But more recently, and for very specific use cases, um, there are think tanks such as Cefia Group or Circle that are looking at specific use cases for sustainability, particularly with consumption and production of goods and services, which is a very important sustainability goal that was defined by the UN. So the fashion industry alone is worth more than $2.5 trillion and it employs 75 million people. But across the full life cycle of clothing, we know that the annual footprint is something spectacular, like 3.3 billion tons of CO2. So something needs to happen with product life cycle in order to meet the 2030 targets. And the extension of product life cycle is rapidly becoming mandatory for brands that aim to compete in a market where consumers are better informed than ever before. And that's where digitalization plays a huge role. And Christine, I mentioned in my intro that you are working on two startups at PVH. Do you want to Give us a quick overview of them and how they are contributing to digitizing the fashion value chain. Absolutely. So we have two technology startups called Hatch and Stitch. And the main aim of these two groups is to digitize the value chain. And when we're speaking of the value chain, it's really everything that the consumer does not see. So it's how your garment gets created, how it's sold to different department stores and retailers, and how it eventually gets to the consumer. And we think that in the traditional process that that the industry has run for a very long time, that there's a lot of waste. 
there's a lot of rework, there's inefficiency. And we think that with the right technology and with the right kind of transformation mindset, we can do a lot better. So Stitch, the, their sole aim is to scale 3D garment creation at fashion brands. So to really allow brands to start designing digitally and make the process first time right instead of six time right, uh, reduce prototypes, reduce samples. And secondly, Hatch, they are really passionate about digitizing wholesale selling. Wholesale selling right now is conducted in showrooms. You need a, a huge amount of samples to actually sell the collection to your retailers. And the digital showroom also aims to digitize that process completely, whether in showroom or remotely. And it really allows brands to reduce that dependency on samples, to increase their efficiency, to reduce their time to market. And that creates a lot of opportunities to improve from a sustainability point of view. Joanna, the sustainability message is front and centre on the homepage of uh, the Charles Farm website. Why is this issue so important to you? Thank you, Russell. I think for, for us, we're predominantly a baby and child skincare brand. And therefore, we have a responsibility for looking after the adults of the future. And we feel extremely strongly that we must, through our own ability to do things, educate the future custodians of the planet and you know look we we launched when my children were very little as a solution for them and we've kept on going in the same vein using PCR we've now actually moved to a stage where we've got a hundred percent ocean prevented plastic so that's plastic that has been got from rivers tributaries that is banned for the ocean it's collected in a community initiative um, so really helping people achieve things but everything we do from looking at our packaging to the ingredients that we use we look for the impact that that has on the environment and therefore for us because we are the leading brand in the UK we have this fantastic opportunity to encourage our consumers to take on board what we're doing and thinking about what we're doing in the context of their own lives but also something we do differently, which is a SME, a small to medium enterprise, I suppose, than the larger businesses, is we don't greenwash what we're doing. We don't talk about what we're going to do. We talk about things when we have done them because we see so often in the press headline gramming statistics about we will be doing this, but we never actually hear about when these big companies have actually done it. And, you know, we've had to go further afield to get our ocean prevented plastics because the big pharmaceutical and the big consumer companies have taken everything within the European water basin, whether they're using it or not, is yet to be seen. But we, for us, it's so important. We're working to become a B Corp next year. We think there is no excuse for any SME not to take this approach. And if SMEs are then the lifeblood of the economy, and in due course, we see a lot of them being purchased by these larger companies, your grassroots effects could be hugely impactful. Okay, Gemma, we haven't heard from you yet, so I'm going to come to you first on this one. As someone who until recently uh, worked on the brand side at, at, at Pentland Brands, uh, which uh, for those who aren't aware has brands such as Speedo and, and Berghaus, what, what are you seeing that brands are doing to really embrace the sustainability agenda and what aspects of digital can be used to power it? 
Yeah, so I think it breaks into probably three three buckets. And you know, when I was on the on the brand side, and now that I have a kind of slightly wider, broader vantage point as an advisor, I'm still seeing the same three three trends, if you like. Whilst I, I think uh, Joanna is absolutely right that virtue signaling is to be avoided at all costs. I, I think it's positive that we're seeing brands having a conversation both with consumers but also with their suppliers with the people who actually you know manufacture their 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 goods and then they're they're really using digital channels to communicate both their intentions their their vision and and actually then the kind of the hard and fast facts about products uh, whether it's on an e-commerce experience or you know through various digital channels uh, social media channels and so on i think e-commerce platforms are even becoming more sort of aware of how you actually um, need to organize your data and put that data into platforms so that you can you know for example tag information to to be able to show how sustainable it is and what the precedence of the of the the product is so there's a lot around communication which is coming in in different forms i absolutely agree as i said with joanna that virtue signaling is to be avoided and we have seen a bit of greenwashing out there the second point which probably speaks more i see probably is a bit more expert in this area is that piece around re-engineering the supply chain and the role that digital has to play in that I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it later. It can seem absolutely overwhelming when I was working on on the brand side and trying to have those conversations. It really felt like a big hill to climb. But you see small up and coming SME brands actually challenging all these preconceptions, the likes of, say, in footwear, which is hugely wasteful, actually, in terms of, of production. Brands like Allbirds really challenging, you know, larger uh, brands like Nike or, or Addy. I think Allbirds is just announced a collaboration with, with Adidas. So we'll see if they follow through on that. So there's a lot of work going on there. A brand I worked on, Kickers, has just redesigned the way it makes its footwear to, to design out some of the more inefficient processes. So you, you see a lot already happening, both in terms of the way products are designed and then the way the materials are uh, sourced. And then the third area, which is probably my, my sort of stomping ground, if you like, is, is e-commerce. You know, there's been, as we all know, an absolutely huge increase in, you know, online purchasing since COVID kind of came into all of our lives. But with that comes enormous inefficiency. And, you know, it, it is incumbent, I think, on all brands to reduce and to think, how do you organize your supply chain, your deliveries to be more efficient? You know, I'll give you a, a really interesting stat. You know, a, a brand that doubles its average basket size per order and sends it in one shipment as opposed to multiple deliveries can reduce average emissions by 30% and reduce shipping costs by 50%. And I think that's the kicker is that we're at a point now where it actually makes business sense to run sustainably. And when we can bring those two things together, which I think is happening, that's why we're seeing this big move forward. COVID may slow that down somewhat, but you know, if you look at, I see the big fashion platforms like Zalando, you know, Europe's largest fashion platform. There's another big one called Global Fashion Group, which runs fashion platforms across South America, Central Europe, um, Southeast Asia. And they're really putting sustainability at the heart of how they innovate. And when you see that movement at scale, you know, the tanker really is starting to turn. So those would be the the, the three main buckets uh, where I'm seeing change right now. 
I love that. I mean, let me just add something here, Russ, in terms of uh, the, the, the greenwashing aspect or thinking that it's easy to think that corporate is not really doing anything to move the needle. I've been collaborating on a study where I had to read the accountant reports of hundreds of the top Fortune 500 companies. I've read hundreds of them from 2018, 2019. And then I was looking into the ESGs, the non-financial metrics of each one of these businesses. What were they reporting on in terms of CO2 emissions, in terms of waste management, in terms of water consumption, in terms of energy consumption? Ranking these people in terms of ESGs and then compare what they say their investment is in digital transformation, there's definitely a gap there. So the direction of digital transformation tends to be in some cases related with the ESGs that they report to, but not in all the cases. So all of the, these big companies are the first ones to say also that there's a long way to go. In this particular ranking I was working on in a scale from one to, one to 100, uh, there was no one scoring higher than 70. However, the ones that were scoring between 60 and 70 were, and the top three were, were really fashion and, and beauty, believe it or not. So L'Oreal, Inditex, and Nike. And what they had in their accountant reports that proves that it goes beyond greenwashing is the application of money for digital transformation in circular economy business cases, in measuring ESGs, in making their supply chain more transparent. So I think there's hope that, that some of the big businesses are heading the right direction. There's definitely um, a leadership coming from Europe on this. When we look at the legislation across the world, Europe is leading the way. There are interesting conversations happening around taxonomy, categorization of products. My hope is really that at some point this means higher taxes for non-sustainable products. Which would be absolutely the right thing to do. And I think this is why something like B Corp makes businesses focus on what they're doing, because it's more than just sustainability. It's about people as well and the community within which they work. And anything that drives every single member of that group, whether it's a small or a large business, to be conscious. And I think this is the key point here. It's being completely conscious of where their products that they use come from. And interestingly enough, we had a debate this week. We've just been on holiday and I had from 14-year-olds to 23-year-olds debating fast fashion. And their biggest frustration was that they can only afford to buy cheap fashion. And we were trying to explain to them that that comes at a cost and it comes at a human cost. If we have their frustration becomes more readily available. I would love to see fashion houses talking to the young to understanding from them what their frustrations are. They want to buy sustainable products. They want to, they all buy stuff digitally. They need to be told exactly what's a good product, you know, a virtuous product, if you like, a product that will let them sleep at night versus one which could exploit their workers to is using products which are totally unsustainable with the environment. That would be an amazing initiative to actually bring the youth of, of, of Europe together and, and, and hear what they have to say, because boy, my experience is they're pretty opinionated. I agree. And I, I think they, you underestimate young people at your peril now, because my, I, just like you, Joanne, I have an 11 year old daughter 
who wanted to spend some of her birthday money on a fashion brand, a fast fashion brand. And she asked me, she was like, yes, but is this good for the world out of nowhere? Because they are being heavily influenced and she does everything online, everything digitally. She knows how to source information. Um, and yet she wants to know. So I think, you know, that there's a, a hard reality that we all have to face into, which is that, we may have to consume less, but we still have to run businesses and grow businesses. So how do we square that circle? And, you know, obviously from my vantage point as someone who's been in digital for a long time, there's absolutely a role for digital to play end to end through the whole journey and the, and the supply chain. But really facing into that fact and being forced into it by our children is, is, uh, is the biggest step we have to take. But I, mine all buy all their clothes from Depop now. They buy secondhand because they are very conscious. They don't want to be responsible for remanufacturing stuff. Although one did say to me that one pair of trackie bottoms that she really needed were sustainably made, but they were £130. And what was I going to do about it? And I said, well, that'll take you a while to save up for them. But wait, you love them when you get them. <laughs> and Christine, you were nodding along to most of what was being said there. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, you know, my passion is digital. So I am a solid believer that digital can play a very large role. But it is exactly this. Digital can be really overwhelming, especially when it's about digital transformation. Because it's not just about applying technology to a certain business problem. It's re-engineering. Exactly like you said, it's re-engineering processes. And that means change. And humans just don't necessarily or intrinsically like change. So driving a digital transformation, whether it's in garment creation, whether it's in your supply chain, or whether it's in B2B selling processes, it, it's really tough. You really have to focus on both making sure that you have the right technology that creates value immediately, not a two-year implementation where everyone's just waiting on when is it going to be great and done. But you also need to make sure that you have the users along, that you have ambassadors, the people that actually have to work with that technology, they need to be on board and they need to be upskilled and they need to be retrained. But it also goes for sea level. Like this, these kind of things need to be on the strategic agenda at all times. It needs to be communicated and story told. Like otherwise, it, these kind of transformations don't succeed. And I think that's why digital has been so slow because fashion is an old industry. It has traditional ways of working. And yeah, that that digital element to really go at it to for it to become a competitive advantage for it to to uh, really help you on your sustainability goals, it requires that kind of change. So it really requires a bit of courage and and taking the leap to to make this something that you can really leverage and bank on. You're so right, and I think what I spent a lot of my my time in my previous role doing was trying to find a way in because often it's not about money it's about confidence from from sea level down and and the self-belief to go actually you know the words digital digital transformation sustainability in a way I've come to hate them because they feel so massive that everybody already gets on the back foot whereas actually if you go you know what we're just going to find a way to reduce our returns. Now, I know that if you reduce your returns, you can save enormous amounts of money and reduce your carbon footprint by a huge amount. Or, okay, we're just going to rework our, our packaging to make sure that it's you know fully recyclable and that will save us a million bottles a year, which is something that I did in my last role. And you do, you just pick off these little things and then that builds belief. 
And then you start to, you know, it's that kind of incrementality, which is very much a kind of digital mindset, I suppose. And then before you know it, you've got you've you've got a program for digital transformation and sustainable transformation. So, you know that that that's a sort of a technique that I have I have used, um, you know, in my role as as digital innovation director, and and hopefully will do as a CXA as well. At our startups, when when we work with customers, we always tell them think big. So think in that big north star of what you want to achieve, whether it's your sustainability goals or or supply chain reinvention, but start small. And start so tangible because if you don't show the value within a quarter, for example, then you lose momentum and you have to break it down into these small chunks. Otherwise, a digital transformation is something that just happens on PowerPoint and never in real life. The other thing to remember is that Rome wasn't built in a day. And we ha- you have to have this ambition. So if your business is not being driven by people who have passion, and passion is one of those things that so often becomes transactional. It has got to be right up there in forefront of what people are doing. You've got to have this commitment. You've got to have, you know, I work for an SME. Of course I am. I'm a loud mouse frog. I can't work within a corporate environment because my passions are so great and so immense. I know if I say, right, guys, we need to be a B Corp. I've got around me people that say, yeah, we do need to be a B Corp and they will make it happen. But I will always be twitching because I want that to happen. If you've got larger businesses where they don't have, these are not important things to them. You know, I hear all the time, and Jeremy Clarkson is a great advocate of, I will never own an electric car. You know, this is these influencers because, you know, he's an influencer in that area. But, you know, your big corporate executives are influencers about how that the business transpires. These influencers have to be singing from the same hymn sheet. And you can't ignore the fact that we're a digital economy now. Everything that we do has got to be communicated via via the electronic wires or the floaty things in the air. But also those messages of encouraging change. It's raising this level of consciousness. And if COVID has not done that to people, then they've been asleep. This is, we live in a global economy now. It means it's fabulous but it also can be frightening. So let's think what we can all do collectively and individually to make that change. But, you know, I'll keep on using this word conscious, but it is a conscious change. And I think, you know, this is the effect of these, these influencers, so social, social um, media influencers, finding those right people. I mean, we're look, we always look to people to work with. We do struggle because we want them to be, to, to have the same passions we have. Um, otherwise, it doesn't feel authentic to us. But these are people, and we need to embrace people who have got the ear of our children and, you know, our peers. So they will say, well, you know, if this film star believes in it, well, actually, maybe this is something I ought to listen to. I mean, it's that's a sort of quite an extreme version. But we within ourselves and as a group need to stand on our soapboxes more too and say, this, this is what we should feel passionate about. And, and to some extreme say, well, look, this is the passion of this business. If you don't resonate with those passions, it's probably not the business for you. Well, as, as I said uh, in, in my intro, um, I spoke to Kev McFadden at uh, Pentland Brands earlier this week, and I asked him this same question about what they are doing to embrace the sustainability agenda. So let's have a listen to what he had to say. Well, 
as you can imagine, sustainability is incredibly important to us. And if I talk about Berwick House specifically, it's the great paradox of the outdoors industry. You know, clearly we are all passionate about the outdoors and nature, and yet we're part of this textile industry that's the second biggest polluter on the planet. So at Berwick House, we approach sustainability in, in three ways. The first, and for me probably the most important one, is that we make products that are incredibly durable. So it's likely that they will last you for a very long time. And hopefully, therefore, you only have to buy a piece of kit once or at least very infrequently because that garment will withstand everything that you can throw at it. And then just in case, we also offer unlimited repairs on everything that, that needs to be repaired, which is something we've done since 1966 when, when we first opened our doors. And that's now free of charge. So that's the first thing we do is to make really durable products. The second thing is to look at the impact of the fabrics, materials and components that we use and work to reduce that impact on the planet as much as we possibly can. And this is where it can get really quite complicated. The supply chain for the textiles industry is enormously complex. And the tracing of a garment's carbon footprint and the ethics that surround that all the way through to the origins of raw materials can be very hard. And it's definitely somewhere that I think digital can play a pivotal role. But that's the second thing, the impact of the fabrics, materials and components. The third thing then is to offset any residual carbon footprint that we create, even with our greatest efforts, we're always going to have some impact on the planet. And so we need to find a way to offset that carbon that we create. And I'm hoping that we can be a net positive business by 2025, which is something we're working towards. In terms of how digital can help power that sustainability, there are many, many ways um, that digital can play a role. I'll give you two examples at probably at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of complexity. Um, at the simpler end of the spectrum, you know, we can provide fairly simple tools such as CRM programs that allow us to monitor the life cycle of a consumer's garment and perhaps make a timely suggestion to ensure that the, the, the garment lives for as long as possible. So reproofing a waterproof, for example. At the other end of the spectrum, we're slightly more sophisticated in using newer digital technology such as blockchain, uh, which could be an incredibly powerful way of improving our sustainability by improving the visibility of the entire supply chain, enabling us to track raw materials from their point of origin all the way through the manufacturing process. And I think it's been great to see some early adoption of this in our industry, but that really needs to accelerate now beyond the niche and become part of the mainstream of our industry. I also asked uh, Kev how challenging it is as a brand owner to monitor his whole supply chain in terms of sustainability. It's incredibly challenging, but it's a challenge that we, we need to rise to. And um, I find it helpful to think about the challenge in, in two ways. The first one is to think about the question, what is sustainability? Or rather, what is a good sustainable solution to a problem? So sadly, the answer to that is rarely black and white and i'll give you a great example so we ship our garments in plastic bags little clear plastic bags which is an essential way of protecting a garment on its way from the factory through to the store that it's sold in or direct to you if you buy it on the website you can now get compostable plastic bags which sounds great doesn't it however many of those bags will only decompose or compost under very specific conditions and they certainly don't decompose on the rubbish heap or even in the recycling bin so there's a risk that people 
think they're doing the right thing by choosing a compostable plastic bag, but in fact, they're making a bad decision um, that could have been worse than the original alternative. And then also what happens with those bags is they're, they're made from virgin materials. So I had to take more from the earth in order to produce them. Now, if you compare that to what might be perceived as the less sustainable option by using a non-compostable bag, but one that is recycled and recyclable, that might have a smaller carbon footprint and it's it's removing plastic from the supply chain that would otherwise have gone to waste. So what's the better choice? Now, the, ultimately, the better choice is to remove plastic from that element of the packaging entirely, and that's something we're working on. But I think we need to be careful not to make the wrong short-term decision because we think we're you know, doing something that's a bit more ethical and actually it's creating a bigger problem on this side. So, so that's the first part. The second part of the challenge and probably the more relevant part of our conversation today is the complexity of the supply chain for an item of technical apparel. Um, I'll, give, uh, I'll give you an example, and I find it useful to, to break down the supply chain into three layers or three tiers. And let's use the, the Berghaus Brecken Parker as an example. So um, at tier one, where the, where the factory makes the jacket itself, and then we ship that jacket to the market in which it's sold in, it's easy to have full visibility of where that jacket is assembled. We audit the factories regularly. We work with the owners and um, to make sure that people who work there have high levels of welfare, that they're fairly paid. And we publish all of that information on our website. So that tier one, really quite straightforward. And there's no excuse for any manufacturer not to do that. When you go to tier two, that, that layer deeper, you realize that the jacket is assembled from 32 different fabrics, threads, trims, zips, and other components, each of which come from a bespoke supplier. We call that tier two. And much of that level, um, we can trace the sustainability of, but it's harder to trace it as you start to get into a slightly more fractious place of different components. And it can be incredibly time-consuming and a costly thing to do as well. And then you get into tier three, so the third level down, where you're thinking about the raw materials that make up a, a fabric or a component. So think about the farm where the cotton is grown or the mine where the metal is extracted for the, the teeth of the zip or the refinery that makes the plastic for the toggle. You're really going deep into the supply chain there and it can get enormously complex so, and, often, and often quite opaque. And that's part of the reason I joined this conversation actually is because if we can get the digital tools right, it can become far easier for us to trace the supply chain of a garment all the way through from raw materials through to the finished product on the shelf. And that's what we all need in this industry because it will improve the efficiency of how we can trace um, the carbon footprint of a product. And Maria, listening to what Kev had to say there, how can digital transformation help in this respect? By giving transparency to supply chain, that's a huge one. Digital transformation was was seen during many years as uh, let's uh, let, let's let's have a website, let's let's try and 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 be more friendly for the customer. It took a huge amount of years for for companies to to put the customer at the center of the activity. Voice of the customer was was not part of uh, discovery meetings fifteen years ago. Even 10 years ago, I was struggling to see that. It's quite recent that we're starting to see the ability to bring into um, meeting discussions, into discovery sessions, the user-centered or the customer-centric approach. So transparency of the supply chain, um, measuring CO2 emissions, for example, which is a metric that most businesses are, are interested now, 
it's 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 a huge step. And so we don't really talk at ACP about digital transformation anymore. We talk about digital acceleration because the level of change management that it's required, the level of thinking, the level of commitment that it's necessary was never seen before. Of course, we look at something like COVID-19 and the lockdown, restricting businesses from operating in normal ways. Some of these businesses saw this as an opportunity to really bring digital forward and digitalize parts of the business that were not being digitalized before. But as um, as actually Anne-Christine was mentioning earlier on the conversation, it's it's such a shift in the way you need to think that then the change management that it's required, it's so huge that you really need to uh, you need to have the quick wins, but you need to 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 embrace the transformation uh, in, a, in a very different way from what you've done before. So here in Kev, it's, it's really refreshing because not only it represents a group of brands that have been doing a tremendous amount of work in terms of uh, manufacturing using sustainable products. And of course, Gemma can talk a lot more about this than I can because it's, uh, she was part of that business before. But it, it's definitely a brand that I admire by the fact that the, the brands of the group try to, to manufacture using more sustainable products. But also here in Kev, it's so refreshing, you know, someone that is really trying to to drive this change, someone who is very informed about the variables that, that come into play. So it's, it, it, it is really good for us at ACP to see customers like this, that, that we can have a conversation with and, and develop opportunities and really assemble technology in a way that addresses a different theme because sustainability was not a digital transformation theme 10 years ago, but at the moment it is now. I, I see what's your thoughts. I, I just couldn't agree more. Again, you know, I'm passionate about this and everything that how how this industry works. It's a beautiful industry, but it can do so much better. And I just think that, you know, take 3D design, for example. If you if you think of the way that garments get created right now, a, a designer creates a hand sketch. Someone has to interpret that. They create a prototype. A prototype is often shipped across an ocean. Um, and usually that prototype is very far from what the original idea was that a designer had in his or her head. So the the current process, it just creates so much waste and time and waiting on each other. And that is really what something like 3D solves. It's designing in 3D from the start, everyone in there, it's incremental steps so that the moment that you have a garment, you are actually quite confident that when you bring that to a manufacturer, the first time could be right. And uh, the interpretation errors are reduced greatly so that the, the entire chain just speeds up so much more. And you don't have to ship six, seven protos across the ocean in order to eventually come to a garment that you think, hey, yeah, this is actually what I wanted in my head. So, you know, it's these small things, but they have a huge impact. And again, they have a huge impact because it means Designers need to be trained in new ways. And everyone in the design community also needs to understand how to work with digital models and in digital workflows. But I really think, and we're seeing it now at PVH, um, they're at 55% digital creation for all of their apparel. They are seeing this come through right now. They're seeing that 3D is much more efficient. It's faster for them. And also in communicating designs and design concepts to commercial teams, for example, the feedback is just so much more accurate. And 
they're even going as far as selling immediately from a 3D prototype to B2B wholesale uh, department stores without department store buyers even realizing that they're looking at a 3D garment and not a physical garment. And that just meant that they reduced six rounds of prototypes and maybe two rounds of salesman samples that just didn't have to be produced anymore because you went straight from 3D design to a B2B sales uh, process. And you can even go as far as imagining all those 3D garments to be on your e-commerce. So I just think that, you know, if you start thinking in these ways and if brands really, really go for it, there's just so much potential there. Joanna, you have a new brand launching in Pharmology as we're recording this podcast. When you launch a product into the market, how much work goes into ensuring your entire supply chain meets the standards that you have set as a business in terms of sustainability? Well, that's a very good question, Russell. And I think this sort of goes back to what I said earlier about Rome wasn't built in a day. But we were lucky with Pharmology and we did have some challenges over COVID with our supply chain, it has to be said. But we were lucky with Pharmology. We were very clear we wanted to launch that brand with all of our sustainability goals in mind. And that is, as I said before, is from the plastics that we use to the ingredients that we use and the community stories around our ingredients. So, for example, our oats come from Scandinavia and they come from Scandinavia because we can only get the high levels of beta glucan from that particular location because it's so harsh there. But they are not only a byproduct of the food industry, but they are also run as a community, a cooperative, if you like. So there's everybody's getting out of it much more than they would. And, you know, we look through all of those ingredients and we want to be sure that, A, that our carbon footprint is right. We offset all of our carbon footprint. So that's not only those goods that get delivered into us, but all our e-com and our retailer deliveries. And we do that through tree planting. And also right now we're working with a water initiative in Cambodia. Everything that we do, we look at. We've just moved logistics partner that is because their credentials are much better. At the top of our agenda is, is looking to the most sustainable form of plant transportation that we can use, again, starting with Farmology. But what by doing Farmology first, our much bigger brand, Child's Farm, will be complete by the end of the year and on the same plastics. And we've, got, we've always had the ingredients way of working with Child's Farm. It just means that we've got the packaging that we need but we've been conscious, and I, I must stress as well, it's a lot easier for us because we are a smaller business. Um, we're much more agile. We've started from the very beginning having very clear principles. But as I say, we're not where we want to be. Do we want to be using even recycled plastic to hold things in? No, not really. But it's, it's, it's the best of a bad lot at this current environment. We look at everything from bamboo to mineral oil developed but you have to look at the entire carbon footprint of that supply chain so from that's how much energy is used you know an alternative potentially could be glass how much energy used is used to blow glass how much is is used to on the whole production line and we look at all of that and the joy about launching with a new brand is we've been able to start from scratch create those principles which we can now move on to the rest of our brands which is great, but it takes time. And this is the really most important thing to stress. 
it is change. And I've got a willing team of people who are absolutely game on for any form of change for the way they do things, really passionate about what they're doing. But you are trying to change a decade long perception of how people do things. We've always done it like that. But I do think COVID has given us all a jolt. I mean, look, we're all doing this on a Zoom call. You know, I, I look at what my diary would have looked like for this year and how many countries I would have been going to, which I'm not going to now. Has it changed the tempo of our business? No, not at all. And as AC said, she's doing all of this electronically now. You know, it's all being done in a, in a way and in an environment which is showing that we can do things differently. And the whole world has embraced this working from home. And it really does. I mean, obviously, those manufacturing plants, they still keep going. And there are, those people are so vitally important. And what I would say, they're the most definitely unsung heroes of COVID. But we can do this. And if it needs a short, sharp shock and a horrific global pandemic to make us realise change is possible, why can't we then just say, right, we don't need that to happen again for us to realise it's time to move on? Russell, I wonder if I could just pipe in for a second as well, because there's another, uh, something that Kev, Kev sort of talked about when he talked about unlimited repairs that I just want to highlight for, for established businesses who, who are sort of looking, thinking, oh my gosh, how do we get our arms around this? The Berghaus example is really instructive because Berghaus always had a lifetime guarantee. And, and I would urge people who, you know, who are running brands like, you know, that have been around a while, look at what you've always done and almost like sort things into what we need to change and what we've been doing that's sustainable that we should talk about or that we can build on. And what's so smart about what Kev's doing is he's building on something that's been in Burkhouse's heritage since day one you know, and, and just trying to evolve it. And then the, the second piece, you know, we've talked loads about sort of how you re-engineer the supply chain, which is huge and absolutely, it, it's the heart of the matter really. But I think with my sort of customer experience hat on, looking at the whole, the earlier part of what would be a customer journey and thinking, you know, I did a lot of work previously in how do we use AI to encourage people to make more purchases in, in one transaction? And, you know, coming back to my earlier point, that was really made a huge difference because A, we were dispatching things in one go, but B, we actually saw 15% uplift in our, in revenue from applying AI and working with small startups, uh, you know, and it made a real material difference to our commercials, but also to our, our carbon footprint. Now, I'll be honest, I wasn't necessarily thinking about sustainability when I did that, but I look back and I see what a big difference that made. And this was at a time when all of the brands I was working on, like Speedo, Burkhouse, Canterbury, where e-commerce was scaling and, of course, then went off the charts following COVID. So my, my sort of having been in there, if you like, in the in the depths of, of sort of established businesses, look at what you're already doing, be realistic about where you need to change and then be positive and think positively about you know where you've done stuff that could be redefined as as sustainable because it's good for your brand good for your message good for your commercials and gives you that belief and confidence it was, it was quite interesting going back to that point about it was i thought i hadn't realized that burkhouse offered this lifetime you know repair guarantee which i think is 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 really commendable especially when it's such an outdoorsy brand 
and it's sort of all going to get beaten up. But again, on this sort of, you know, the youth table at lunch when we were talking about clothing and we were saying about how, you know, my kids wear my old clothes from, you know, when I was in my 20s. And the difference in how clothing was made as well, you had decent seams. So if you had to let something out or if you wanted to make a change, you could. Now the seams are infinitesimally small. And whilst this isn't, you know, fantastic in terms of people buying more, I'm not so sure people would be willing to pay more to get something which they know will last them longer and has got some thought that's gone behind it to ensure that if you put on a couple of pounds, actually there's something you can do about it. And it's just something we were talking about as, as a group. And again, talking to your point, Gemma, about you talked earlier about you had 30% reduction in emissions and 50% in reduction of shipping costs for these larger orders and encouraging people to buy more in one go. We need to think about that. Anyone who's got an e-com platform, if you buy more, it, it's much more beneficial for you because we're still receiving our margin and let's pass that on to our consumer. So there's many more ways we can encourage people to think more about it and, and this transparency. And then I think people will consciously shop with those brands that they know operate on a much more open way of doing business. Gemma, um, let's assume that brands are getting their, their houses in order then, you know, when it comes to sustainability. Do you think they also now have a responsibility to educate the consumer about it? And 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 if so, how much will digital play a part in that I do yes I do I mean there's there's always a fear you know in brands with brands that they become too too preachy but given everything we've just discussed given the fact that we have you know we are in agreement that there's there is demand from the consumer for more information to understand where their products come from how they've been created and the carbon footprint i think you know it would be remiss of brands now to you know not to to try and educate but it doesn't have to be done in a preachy way you know another brand I, I worked on a small Californian sneakers brand called CVs has just produced a you know a a totally sustainable range of of footwear and they also and have been for for several years contributing to one percent for the planet which is a, a quite a big program in the US I'm not sure how big it is um, here and that's just you know it's a signal it's displayed across the, the whole range, but it's not sort of put in front of the of the consumer in a really explicit way. But that is a form of, of education. There's opportunities through, I think Kev mentioned in his snippet, you know, using sort of uh, CRM and customer communications um, to try and talk to people at the right time in the life cycle of their product about, you know, uh, you know, if you have a rucksack and they've had it for a few years, you know, do you need to needed to take a look at your rucksack and repair it or or whatever so there's different techniques that can be that can be done in a, in a subtle way using primarily digital channels influencers will always have a part to play there that doesn't have to be overly sort of teachery in, in the way that uh, it's communicated maria yeah i think definitely i agree with with Gemma, but uh, I, I think it's the pressure of consumers that it's making businesses to change what I see is that the fact that fashion businesses, beauty business started to be more customer centric 
displayed this opportunity to look at things we were not seeing before, this voice of the customer being now part of the businesses. So I'm not sure if it's the brand's informing consumers or if it's consumers putting the pressure and making businesses chain as a change as a result of that i believe it's uh, it's really about the consumers and 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 the fact that they are demanding brands from making business differently and education can can take many shapes and forms i'm thinking about the, there's a company called aeon who is bringing together people from various parts of the, the, the ecosystem, so recyclers, fashion brands, and, and also some associations that are doing uh, good work with, with educating consumers about uh, circular economy, bringing all of them together, thinking about a standard, and, and using technology as a way to create a digital identity for product. So the, the new thing here is that it's using RFID tagging as a thread that can be infused in the fabric of, of, of the garment. And then with that, it, uh, it can be washed many, many times without losing the details of what that garment is made of. Because if we think, okay, we, I don't know a single person in the world that tells me, oh, I don't want to recycle the garments we produce. So of course, everyone wants to do that, but there is an impossibility for recycling if there's no understanding of what that garment is made of. And traditional ways of tagging garments are not enough. We need technology. So I'm really, um, not only RFID tagging is not new, but what, what is new with this initiative from Aeon is the creation of a standard that everyone in the industry understands so that when it comes to recyclers, they know what that product was made of. Recycling cotton is very different from recycling polyester. And we all know that fabrics are not of one kind only. There, there's so many blends, so many variations. So if we want to avoid landfill to continue as a way to get rid of products by the end of cycle, we need to use technology. So I think this is also about, it, it, it's information, it's companies like this, it's this type of startups that can that can help change the industry. But look at the amount of collaboration here. Another good example, big corporate company, Levi's, what they've always done to inform their competitors about what they are doing in order, for example, to reduce water when they're washing the jeans. They've developed a complete system using laser to create the exact washing they want in the jeans. And they've invited all of their competitors to see that. I mean, a couple of years ago, this is not even recent. So the collaboration is what will make the change. It's assuming that change management and digital transformation is not happening inside our doors anymore. It's, it's about this variety of stakeholders that, that are outside our company. So the only way to do that is with, with transparency, but can we hold the power that that brings? I, if I can chime in here, I just, I love what you're saying because I think one of the reasons why in fashion digital has not accelerated so fast yet, it's because it's it's a very siloed industry. Brands really take their IP, their creative IP, like they don't want to share with others because it's, they think it's everything that they own. But when it comes to digital, you need collaboration because for digital to be able to succeed, whether you're talking about 3D design, so digital fabrics, digital trims, you need to collaborate. You need factories, mills, brands to all come together. And that the second code word you mentioned is you need standards. 
And standards are important, not just for sustainability. Standards are important if you really want to scale digital across the industry. You need everyone to start agreeing, whether it's like baseline data models or uh, understanding of what, what everyone wants to have or quality, how you want to digitize your fabric so that you get the best possible 3D rendered garment. Uh, these kind of things are, are so crucial. And I'm really hoping that with the examples that you also mentioned, Maria, that we're starting to see the first pushes into that. And at the startup, so at Hatch and Stitch, it's also the, the one thing that we believe in is collaboration because we can't, you cannot solve this industry by yourself. You need to work with other parties in order to drive and push and continue to push for the change that needs to happen. Okay, well, um, let's have a listen to what Kev McFadden uh, said on this topic as well. Yes, I think we do. I think the entire industry has a responsibility to um, educate people on sustainability. I think what's great is that we're increasingly seeing people, consumers choose to educate themselves. But nonetheless, there's still an onus on us. If we don't keep educating people to make positive buying decisions, then how can we really expect to see further change? And of course, digital is a critical tool. We, we're all, as consumers, using digital tools and platforms to inform our buying decisions and digital, digital media platforms more are more present in our lives than ever and form a greater part of our um, media digest. So, so, yeah, I think it's really important. And I think it's interesting as well to see mediums that would be traditionally a physical medium, such as a museum, now popping up in digital spaces. Just this morning, I was looking at an Instagram page called Fashion for Good, and they're an Amsterdam-based museum, but they've now created this virtual museum so that anyone in the world can go and look at their uh, materials on what is sustainability in a fashion uh, landscape. And I think that the, the prevalence of those digital experiences are great for both the industry and great for the consumer in making more informed choices. Maria, what about this trend to fast fashion? We've kind of touched on this a little bit in terms of buying secondhand, but th this trend to fast fashion from my perspective, that's being driven by the industry. So doesn't that have an impact on sustainability? Yes. Fast fashion is driven by consumer behavior, though. The average consumer buys 60% more garments compared to 15 years ago. And yet each clothing item is not kept half as long. So it's a consumer behavior that it's driving companies to understand that it's profitable to do fast fashion. 70% of young people, though, say they wouldn't wear an outfit again if it had been on Instagram. So there's something here in terms of social media behavior that also is attractive when, when it comes to buy fast fashion as opposed to spend a little bit more money for a garment that stays for longer. So fast fashion being an industry response that aims to profit from this consumer behavior because consumers want to consume more and more often. The question that intrigues me is why are consumers willing to buy items that they use less than seven times, and in many cases only once? So the industry can change by enabling business models, for example, with renting. And here it comes technology again. I mean, if the behavior is, I want to use this garment once, why do I need to own that garment why can I not just rent and then give it back or have a possibility for secondhand? So re-commerce, something that was sold once that stays in the chain and then comes back. 
if we look at supply chains and, and how things are set up, they are set up for linear thinking. Product is created, product goes across the supply chain, product is sold. Some brands are looking at how can we take that product back for recycling. And in most cases, it cannot be recycled if you can't read the tag. But re-commerce in itself also means, think about re-commerce for luxury products. How do I know it's fake? How do I know that's a real Chanel? <laughs> you need technology. And again, RFID has been doing a lot of work on that. I've seen many use cases with blockchain, but they tend to all end up with an app for the consumer, and I'm not convinced, right? I think blockchain could do some of this, could solve some of this, because it would guarantee authenticity. But people re really need to think about any startup out there doing blockchain. Please think of an application that can be incorporated with existing technology. Collaboration, we go back to that point. I mean, we don't need another app in our mobile phones to certify authenticity. So um, collaboration can, can, can do something about that. So re-commerce and renting need this authenticity use case um, to be validated. Um, I don't know about beauty, how it works that much, but uh, I, I would um, I would expect that you know it, it it's a completely different situation when it comes to to products that uh, that people buy just you know and they don't finish that product even and then they just throw it away. And I think to a to a certain extent, um, when it comes to beauty products, you need to own them. I don't know. I would be intrigued to see a case where you could where you could have a service or something like that where you where you get um, your makeup done or you know the application of products. I don't know. I don't think it's the same at all. But in fashion, with garments, definitely technology can can enable re-commerce, renting, and recycling use cases. And that will help with the fast fashion issue that we have. I, th I think in beauty, what, what I see is that it's new, new. It's the same principle, really. It's new. I've got to have it. A new brand launches. I was talking to one of my teenagers the other day about a particular brand. And I said, she said, oh, all my friends use it. And I said, well, do you like it? Is it good on your skin? She said, no, that's why I don't buy it. They all buy it. It's no good on their skin, but they like the way it looks. And it's a brand they want to be associated with. Now, that to me is completely crackers. But, you know, you have to offer that same thing. So with us, for example, we say, if this irritates your skin, we'll refund you in full. You know, I know that I stick to those brands that are tried and tested. But if I don't, if I try something and I'm not sure about it, I will always give it to someone. I'm not sure in these sort of COVID days that that's, that's something we can do. Uh, and particularly cosmetics. Wow, that is such a turnover. And it will be this season's colour, this, you know, nail colour to eye colour. There is such a turnover. And when I look at teenagers who have a vanity case full of makeup. It is this, it's this, the whole trend. It's this consumer sort of avarice, if you like. If I don't have it, I'm not in with the fast crowd or the cool crowds. But that's, that's, that's a problem of youth as well, isn't it? And, and, and again, this is what these kids were saying to me. We want to have these fashionable clothes. We want to look good in what, and we want to look, feel good in what we're wearing. 
and they feel this sort of pressure to purchase, even if they don't necessarily want it. And, and that's something that, you know, we could go a long way to alleviate through education. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it comes back to that point, you know, technology, you know, whilst uh, it's absolutely in my kind of DNA and, and, and additions in my DNA, the reality is all those things are enablers. What it's going to come back to are, are two things, education and the willingness of businesses, whether they're fast fashion or luxury or whatever, to actually put a stake in the ground at that sea level and say, this stuff matters and we're going to find a way. And then you you can leverage your your sort of, you know, technology and, and digital channels and so on to do that. But I, I, I don't think I think those two key principles of education and I suppose just strategic vision uh, so will be what drives the agenda forward. And we're not going to be able to get away from there's no way around this. And I think now's the time to face into it. No, I agree. And you think about what AC was talking about in this 3D designs, you know, isn't that much so much easier way to purchase? And, you know, you can see, put in your body measurements and see what it looks like on you. And you can say yes or no. Think of all the carbon emissions you're saving by not going to the wretched shopping center or whatever it is. You can really work to what suits you. And it needs, as you say, it needs to be a, a, a sea level initiative that's saying less is more. Spend a bit more on stuff which is good quality, will look, suit you and last, that you wear it more than once. Or if you've got a special occasion, rent it. Yeah, and even imagine. So imagine if you do have all these 3D garments and you still have consumers and kids that want to portray a kind of style on Instagram or TikTok if it still exists. What if you could just overlay your a 3D garment? What if you could sell 3D garments to the kids for two euros? They post it, everyone's happy, nothing and and no nothing happened to the world. Like that would be an amazing thing. And I think that could be something that you'll see in the future as 3D also starts to scale with fashion brands. We're, we're talking about a lot of tech kids. Uh, Gemma, does digital acceleration have to be expensive? Well, no, I I guess there's two ways to answer that because, you know, expensive in the short term can often turn out to be cheapest in the long run, right? That's that's the whole kind of principle that underpins the concept of investment. However, I do think we, we all know what's happening in retail right now. I think it's difficult for businesses to make large capex investments. But having said that, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, it is often a question of trying to build confidence and you can start small. Uh, you know, as AC said, think big, but start small. Start by doing things. You know, we we ran um, at Pentland Brands uh, a little unit called Disruption Lab where we would bring people together from within the organization, worked with two great consultancies, Future Labs and Studio Zao to identify sort of what we called opportunity areas get smart people together, run a kind of Google Sprint type methodology to incubate ideas over a three or four day period. None of that needed money. It just needed smart people in a room working within a particular framework. Um, and out of that came some really amazing ideas, you know. So there are ways to to move forward when, you know, large CapEx investments are, are not really on, on the agenda. And I think it's just, it's a question of keep moving 
keep looking for the value because at the end of the day, we have to be realistic about the commercials here and the need to grow businesses and make money and be profitable. It is there. You know, it it, it will come, but it, it requires, it still requires that belief to drive it from the top and then the willingness to be very pragmatic about how you, you know, how you keep that going through, through difficult times. So it, it, it's not a very black and white answer, Russell, but um, you know, it, it, it's uh, it, my advice would, would be to keep looking for the opportunity. So I really, uh, I think that the, the costs of digital acceleration also are related to how you're running the program. If you really think of it of this long-term thing and you stay in PowerPoint forever and you're waiting until it's 100% perfect to actually start implementing, then you're already too late and it probably already costs you too much money. So it's really about how you're doing it and not have this drag out or be a start-stop initiative or it's to switch leadership, sponsorship, or you know all these kind of thing, things really greatly impact the cost elements of digital acceleration. And it's like Gemma said, it, you need to have bite-sized chunks, show value, and then continue. And that's something that that can make it really worthwhile already on the short term. Okay, I, I want to quickly move on to the future of the industry. Um, Maria, thoughts on, on the opportunities there? There's lots of opportunities. I think some wild cards from my site would include virtual runway shows with avatars, virtual reality in store to unlock brand experiences, but then also a transparent supply chain. And my personal dream is enormous taxes on non-sustainable products. Gemma, your thoughts? Not to sound like a broken record, but I, I, the one thing we haven't really talked about, but I, I think is critical is, is regulation, actually, and, and government and policy and the role that that has to, has to play here. You know, it's, it's clear that Europe is currently leading the way, but um, I, I think we definitely need that kind of systemic intervention and uh, lots of people probably won't thank me for saying that but but you know it, nobody can be excluded from this sort of movement forward if you like joanna how about yourself well i mean if you think about you know beauty is all about skin and if you could have a virtual doctor who can look at your skin and can tell you your skin type and the products that are going to most suit that well fantastic it means you sort of cutting out a lot of waste and achieving some real positivity there because, you know, as a brand that specializes in dry, sensitive and eczema prone skin, mental health around skin is a real issue. And you don't want to be having to spend a fortune to be constantly disappointed. So, you know, let's create something which allows any skin type to be zapped and to be told what will suit you. The savings from that would be immense. AC? So I think that with all that is happening in the world, the, the changes that we see around us, even with COVID, the, the biggest opportunity or maybe what I really hope to see is that real mindset shift. It's not just a shift in consumer behavior and what their needs are, but it's also shift at big industry and especially in fashion. I hope that this is really changing minds that we need change. We need the supply chain to work in a more transparent and sustainable way. And digital is one of those ways to achieve it. And again, it's not just plug and play a technology in there. It's re-engineering the way we're working. And that just unlocks so many opportunities and so many innovations. I just can't wait to see that all happen. 
Well, I'll tell you something, talking about the future. So this is, I'm going to throw this one in. I saw this on a tweet just this week, in, you know, and sort of prepping for this podcast. So this was on Bloomberg uh, Quick Takes Twitter feed. And they, were, they, they shared a video from the Commonwealth um, Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, which is Australia's national uh, science agency, where they're growing coloured um, cotton plants. Maria, you're smiling at this one. What? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, here we have our modern minds continually to try and change the way nature works. I mean, my thoughts on that, and I saw the, the response to that Twitter, I saw that one, and one of the responses was, what are we going to do next? Alter the color of the sheep as well, so that our wool can come with different colors? I mean... It, it may it may solve the problem on one side, but I'm not convinced that it does not create other problems. I don't know, altering something genetically. When I think about sustainability, I think about there's one expert only of, a, of it, and it's nature, right? We are the ones disrupting sustainability. And until we design in the way that nature designs, we are not able to solve this. Digital transformation, it, it's a way to achieve better results. But it's important that parallel to this, there is some thinking about biology. How can biologists help us to design better businesses? Most of the answers we're looking for, for business problems, are in nature. And so I don't agree with uh, altering the, the cotton um, color. And can I also point out as well that the Australian cotton industry, a country that never has native cotton in it, has done nothing but destroy the rural countryside through drought by the diversion of the Murray River. So when we go back to talking about our supply chain, it means going back right to the very beginning and understanding, is that the right place for these goods to come from? And I absolutely concur with Maria on this. If we look to nature, we have to truly look to nature. Where do these places, plants grow naturally? Where is the environment that suits them? And stop trying to impose cash profit-led uh, initiatives, which, which have disastrous consequences on our environment and planet. Wow, I threw, I threw in a good one there. Sounds like we can do a whole podcast on, on just that one question. Um, okay, listen, I, I want to finish off with one last question. And given everything that we've discussed, uh, I want to ask whether you think sustainable fashion and beauty has finally gone mainstream. But you've got a minute to think about your answer because firstly, here's what uh, Kev from Pentland Brands had to say on that same question. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Um, but I think the level to which it's being embraced will vary from country to country. And I also think there are some other factors in the mix. So uh, that includes things like socioeconomic factors. Can people afford to buy some of the more sustainable options? But yes, I think sustainable fashion is probably now a, a fair level of mainstream consciousness. But that's not enough. And it's still got a long way to go and many barriers to overcome. I think the harsh reality is that all too often sustainability requires a compromise on behalf of the consumer. That might be a higher price, it might be lower quality, it might be um, that it's not as well distributed or that it's not as easy to identify as a sustainable product. So, yes, I think it's gone mainstream, but also there's much more room for opportunity and certainly no space for complacency. So, uh, Joanna, what's your thoughts? 
Um, I certainly think the beauty industry has got an awfully long way to go. Um, I see new brands launching almost every day of the week, and I see compromise after compromise after compromise. We, I totally agree with a form of legislation or regulation when it comes to new beauty products to ensure that the best ingredients, the right sort of ingredients are being used. We have to think of the waste of those, those ingredients that are used and how the packaging is done to the best of its ability. I think we're woefully far behind in the beauty industry and we need seismic shift to actually understand that, that we have a responsibility here and we need to take this extremely seriously. It is most definitely planet before profit right now. Uh, Gemma? It's interesting. I, 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 I think fashion certainly in retail has a long way to go. There's been you know, commendable efforts over the last few years, but it still feels to me a bit like where we were 10 years ago when people were talking about the value of having sort of 50-50 represent, gender representation at board level or putting kind of consumers at the, the center of how you run businesses. You know, we're still sort of talking about it where, you know, getting our heads around it, but they're good initiatives, but you're not seeing the consistency and you're not yet seeing success at scale. So coming back to what jo- Joanna said um at the beginning, there's possibly still a, a, a bit a bit too much virtue signaling and, you know, still more to do to actually follow through and deliver. But the first step is the honesty and recognizing that we need to have this vision and, and you know, stick by our principles. And yes, also put, you know, planet a little bit more ahead of profit. I see. With the onset of digitization in the value chain combined with shifting consumer behaviors. I'm hopeful that it will become mainstream. For sure, we're not there yet. But with all the external factors that are happening, it's a necessity to change. So I'm very hopeful that it will become mainstream in the the medium to, to long term. And uh, Maria, you had the uh, the first word on the podcast, so you can have the last. I, I agree with the panel. I think we're not there yet, but there's definitely a momentum that was built. And when we had the child, Greta, saying to the world, you guys are not doing anything, from that moment I saw a shift. But do, we don't need to continue in activist mode. I think what we need more is, um, well, think big, start small, This is what we know, having worked in digital transformation for many, many years, all of us, we know that's the principle, right? And I still see sustainability being treated a little bit as uh, with negative information, which definitely may freeze us from action. That's not what we want. We want people to believe that their small actions can have a big impact, just like a drop in the ocean that creates those waves. That is what we need to see more. So although I don't think it's mainstream yet, definitely the activist part of it is there. I think there are some lower voices that are being heard. But what about those silent voices that are you know, starting to get ready to put some action in, in all of this? Those are the ones we need to start seeing more and more and nurture and give the opportunity to come and say what they're doing, how they are doing and how we can all get involved. So that's what I expect. And I think, again, lockdown with COVID really 
gave the opportunity for a lot of people to think about what what is what what can I as an individual do with my life? What's my purpose? I don't think that sustainability is a corporate uh, responsibility only. <laughs> it's a corporate responsibility, but corporate is done by individuals. So it's an individual responsibility. What can I do to help? What is my little action? And what is my focus? So until the messaging, the mainstream messaging highlights this, we will continue to say, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a fire, but no one is really grabbing the water. Tremendous. Thanks so much to all of you for joining me online. It's, um, it's been a, a, certainly a long discussion, but it's been fascinating in, in all the areas that we've covered today. So thank you again to Anne-Christine Paulette, uh, Joanna Jensen, Maria Marias and Gemma Carver, and of course to Kev McFadden for his contributions too. Thanks also to the team at SAP UK um, for helping pull this together. Don't forget you can hear more interesting stories from the world of IT and business by subscribing to SAP UK. UK's own Innovation X podcast series, uh, which is available on SAP UK and Ireland channels. Plus, you can follow them on Twitter for their latest news and updates, which is at SAP UK Ireland. Uh, in the meantime, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode, and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of digital acceleration within the fashion and beauty industries. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, or LinkedIn and Instagram pages. They're all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. Uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well, or connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 